Now from Times Square, here's what you need to know. Medical headlines with our favorite, Dr. Jen. Yep. And uh, we're talking about this big headline in The Lancet. Over a billion adults and children worldwide are struggling with obesity. Yeah, so the new numbers are in. Let me take you through them first, looking at how we're doing worldwide when you're talking about the condition of obesity. Uh, first of all, they looked at height and weight measurements from over 200 million adults and children over 30 plus years. They found adults more obese in almost every single country studied in the pediatric population, you guys, a four-fold increase wow. over those last three decades. So not good when you look at the world. Those are incredible numbers. And what do we know about what's happening here in the U.S.? Also not good. If you look at what's going on in the United States, and we've talked about this uh, before, not just how many are overweight, but obese, adults increasing, particularly in men since 1990. When you look at children, one of 10 countries with the highest rate of obesity over the last mm. 30 years is the United States. That is not a statistic we want um, to be leading in. And big picture here, we know for a fact people with obesity are at increased risk for heart disease, diabetes, various types of cancers, all cause mortality. It is conclusively known that the condition of obesity is a chronic disease state. It is not, I repeat, not a character flaw. So we yep. need to yeah. look yep. at this from That's a public so health important. and medical standpoint. So important to emphasize yeah. that, especially as we have all these conversations regarding weight loss. That Correct. Is, there's no stigma yep. here. Absolutely. Yeah. We've got to keep focusing that. Yep. All right. Thank you so you much, bet. Dr. Jen. Now let's turn it over to ABC's Mary Alice Parks in Washington with our latest headlines. Mary Alice, we took you off the White House lawn <laughs> and brought you inside. Tell us what we need to know. Yeah, happy Friday. Uh, we begin with the late winter snowstorm slamming the Pacific Northwest. Officials are telling people to stay inside as that massive blizzard blasts up to 12 feet of snow in some places. With winds of more than 70 miles per hour, the storm shuttering Yellowstone National Park as deadly wildfires in Texas rage on. That is now the largest in state history, killing at least two people and destroying more than a million acres. Livestock on the run. Temperatures there expected to go up again, which will not help the fire situation. So let's go to Sam Champion for a check on your weekend weather. After a cold yesterday, we get heat back into the fire zone. And look, we've got fire alerts that go all the way into Nebraska today. So more wind, more heat into that fire area. We are not getting it under control, and we basically have 24 hours to do that before this next line comes in. This is wind, rain, and snow on the West Coast. Two areas of blizzard warnings now, California all the way into Nevada. Meanwhile, we have record heat building in the middle of the country. That's going to change significantly the weather patterns in the East Coast. Detroit's a record. Chicago's a record. Minneapolis is a record. Lots of weird weather, guys. And the rare sound in Russia, brave protesters chanting the name of Alexei Navalny. He was laid to rest in Moscow. Mourners shouting out, we are not afraid. Aimed at Russian President Vladimir Putin and his government, Navalny's family, supporters, and even officials here in the U.S. say that Putin is responsible for the opposition leader's sudden death. And new chaos and carnage in Gaza may derail efforts to broker a ceasefire and hostage release. Outrage growing over IDF drone images there showing thousands of Gazans surging a convoy full of much needed humanitarian aid. Israeli officials say its tank teams fired warning shots and then in self-defense fired at those who came too close. The Hamas run health industry reports that more than 100 people were killed. 
And here at home on this Friday, a big move by scorer Caitlin Clark just before March Madness begins. The Iowa basketball star says she won't be returning to her college team, but instead will give the WNBA draft a shot. She's expected, of course, to be the number one pick. And she's poised to snap Pistol Pete's Merchev's all-time double NCAA uh, point scoring record by this weekend. Just incredible. incredible. She, she's unbelievable. Yep. I think some of the fans there in the college world are going to be a little disappointed to see her go, but I, I have no doubt yeah. she will succeed. Oh, yeah. Uh, All right. Mary Alice, it is so great to see you. Thanks for being with us today. And there is much more ahead here on GMA3 on this Friday. A sigh of relief in the shutdown showdown after lawmakers pass a funding bill. But how long will it last? ABC Chief Washington Correspondent Jonathan Carl joins us next. And later here, you know him from his 17th season run on America's Next Top Model, what Nigel Barker is working on right now as Women's History Month gets underway. We are back in a moment right here on GMA3. And welcome back to GMA3. Congress, of course, has passed a short-term funding bill to avert a partial government shutdown, at least for now. But new deadlines are already looming. Here to discuss that and more as we round out a busy week in politics is ABC's chief Washington correspondent, Jonathan Carl. John, it's always great to see you. We appreciate you being with us. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. So let's start with this averted government shutdown. This current deal punts off this shutdown, at least, uh, or any kind of full-fledged deal uh, to March 8th and March 22nd, respectively. So what's the likelihood that we're going to see a full-year deal anytime soon? Well, I, I, I think that you actually will see it. I mean, we, we've been through these, thank God, it's like it's Groundhog Day over and over and over <laughs> again. Is there going to be a shutdown? What's going to happen? Poor Speaker Mike Johnson, he's got a two-seat, effectively a, a two-seat majority, and he's got you know more than a handful of his members who wouldn't vote for any spending deal. I don't care what it did. Um, so uh, it's going to be difficult, uh, but I, I think that they'll get it done. But the only way it gets done is with that Republican speaker getting a heck of a lot of support uh, from Democrats. Well, well, John, that's that's what we're going to talk about here, because last fall yeah. we saw what happened during that last <laughs> government shutdown deal. It actually led to the ouster of the former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. So what are House Republicans saying now about this agreement? Well, some of them are longing for the salad days of Kevin McCarthy. Uh, <laughs> you know, they're complaining about this 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 weak need. Mike Johnson's going to make a deal with Democrats. Uh, look, there's a lot of complaining. There are already uh, members, including Marjorie Taylor Greene, has been doing this for a while now, uh, saying that if he goes forward with something like this, uh, you're going to see another motion to vacate, another effort uh, to just to remove the speaker. Could be pretty easy, you know, only two seat majority, but actually it won't be because something very interesting has happened here. And that is that uh, Hakeem Jeffries, the Democratic leader, has now, is now saying publicly uh, that he would be inclined if, if, if the Republicans tried to oust uh, uh, Johnson for making a deal with Democrats, uh, they would be inclined uh, to help bail him out. Um, I'm sure that's not a message that he likes to hear, but he needs it. He's going to need it. Um, and, and, and the uh, Democrats, there are at least a number of Democrats, uh, it wouldn't be all of them, but it wouldn't need to be all of them, who are saying they're not going to allow a Matt Gates or a Marjorie Taylor Greene again to make the House look ridiculous uh, and, and oust another speaker. A bit of a right turn here, John. Uh, foreign aid for Ukraine and Israel has been held up in the House for months now. Now that this government shutdown crisis is at least temporarily averted, 
these are two countries in the throes of war, as we all know. How likely is it that we see a sign-off on foreign aid? Yeah, and there's another one, by the way, that's important, which is aid to Taiwan, which is facing mm -hmm. an increasing mm -hmm. threat from China. These are three major national security concerns, the kind of things that Republicans uh, from the Reagan era on uh, would have been out there fighting for strongly. But now you have a segment of the Republican Party, a significant segment of the Republican Party, that doesn't like uh, the spending particularly uh, on Ukraine. So this is gonna be a huge fight and another defining moment for Mike Johnson, because if he goes forward, look, there's support for all of that, enough support to pass in the House. But the question is, will Mike Johnson defy a sig significant segment of his party and put it on the floor for a vote, something that might need uh, to pass with a majority of Democrats and possibly even near a majority or near majority of Republicans voting against it. Uh, so very much in the air, I, I expect this will be a big theme of President Biden's State of the Union address on Thursday. And John, another big headline out of Washington, of course, Senator Mitch McConnell uh, has announced that he's stepping down as Senate yeah. Minority Leader. Uh, who are the top Republicans who are set to replace him? Well, this is fascinating, Gio, because uh, the, the Senate has really been the last bulwark of the not Trump Republican Party, not so much opposed to Trump, but not willing to do whatever he asks for. Uh, there are uh, you know, a significant number of, of Republican senators. Remember, they're only elected every six years. It gives them more independence, who have actually been uh, somewhat critical, and some of them quite critical, of Donald Trump. So the race to replace him will be a real test of Trump's power. Uh, Trump wanted to get rid of McConnell. That's now happened. Uh, I would say the leading contender is John Thune of South Dakota. Um, he is now the number two, but he's somebody who's been very critical of Trump and very independent. Trump wanted to get an opponent to run against him in South Dakota, but it didn't work. The no, nobody, nobody viable stepped forward. Uh, so that would be one option. Um, also, there's, there's word, there's reporting that uh, Steve Daines of Montana, who has become very close to Trump uh, over the past year, uh, that Trump is quietly encouraging him to run against uh, Thune. John Cornyn of Texas is running very hard. He's also been pretty critical and independent of Trump. It's going to be a fascinating race. Well, someone else who's been uh, critical of Trump, of course, is Nikki Haley, the Republican uh, presidential hopeful. And she suffered those big losses, not only in her home state, but also in Michigan. A lot of people asking, how long can she hold on and what's the strategy there? Uh, she can't hold on much longer is the honest answer. Uh, she's uh, going into Super Tuesday. Uh, just just a, a huge swath of delegates uh, available. By the time this is up, this is this is next Tuesday. Uh, by the time Super Tuesday happened, nearly half of Republican delegates would have been allocated. And it's hard to see right now a single state that she would win on Super Tuesday. Uh, she might get a few delegates here or there, states that aren't winner take all, uh, but it's hard to imagine that her campaign can go much beyond uh, Tuesday night. Uh, so we'll see. All right, well, this campaign, nothing uh, but exciting, huh? It's, uh, <laughs> full of surprises. I mean, my Lord, oh. I'll tell you. It's, it's also, Geo. it's going to be the longest campaign of our lifetime. If, I if, feel uh, for you. We'll, if, we'll get that Cuban <laughs> coffee ready for when you, John my says friend. That, Thank you. When John says that, you know it's something. Chief White House correspondent Jonathan Carl, thank you so much for joining us here on GMA3. Have yourself a great weekend. And up next here on GMA3, he's well known for his years on the hit show America's Next Top Model. Now, Nigel Barker is leading an initiative to empower women and girls in different ways. GMA3 is right back with Nigel.
Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. Welcome back to GMA3. You may know our next guest from his 17-season run Ooh. as a judge and photographer on the hit show America's Next Top Model. I'm not fangirling. You I mean, are. you were just saying how much <laughs> you love him. 17 seasons, okay, for the last 15 years. He's also been an ambassador to the UN, and he's joining us now to talk about his latest venture. Please welcome fashion photographer, filmmaker, CARE Global Ambassador, Nigel Barker. Yeah. Welcome to GMA3. Good to have you. So you've joined forces with CARE, and this is a new campaign that they've started called She Leads the World. You traveled all the way to Sierra Leone right. to, to capture these incredible images and tell these stories. Tell us about that campaign. I mean, <clears throat> an incredible trip. I mean, first of all, all the way to West Africa, 24 hours of traveling. I took my entire crew with me. But the important thing was, was to tell these stories of the extraordinary women that we were meeting, leaders in all fields. On day one, the moment we arrived, we met with the first lady of Sierra Leone. Wow. And we got through to talking to students who had dropped out of school. But the, what the, the, the crux of it was the operations that CARE was doing on the ground and how that actually affected these women and it gave them the opportunity to actually be leaders in their communities, in their families. And it was story after story after story that we met with these extraordinary women in really some areas were really distant, hours and hours into the field, very difficult to get to. But it was, it was a, I guess, a groundbreaking moment for care and for us as well. We were just, we couldn't believe what we were going through. You talk wow. about how you were traversing serious terrain and you went into some very remote places talking to women of all cultures and these were really pillars of strength in their own communities. What is a story that stood out to you that you encountered while you were there? I mean, it was, to be honest, story after story. Everybody had their own unique uh, perspective, and, but it was the difficulty that, that they were going through that at the same time, it, they resonated with all the stories you hear no matter where you are in the world. I think that was the biggest takeaway. You think sometimes you go somewhere so different, so foreign, that you can't, you know, it seems like it's not your world. But then the stories they tell are exactly the same, so similar to what women are going through all over the world. And you know, I've been fighting this fight from a man's perspective for 15 plus years, right? So, but I, and I, so I've heard so many of these things, but there were women, and, and for example, one young girl who had been dropped out of school because they couldn't afford to send her to school, um, but she had somehow still raised the money by finding a job as a KK driver, which is like a, one of these little motorized little vehicles. Very difficult to do because it's all men who do this. So she had to sort of break through the stereotype. Um, but as a result of that, she was feeding her entire family of 12. Yeah. She had put herself back in school. And then she was also volunteering and she was giving away uh, condoms uh, in order to sort of help with the AIDS issues that they have over there. So she was just on so many levels giving back. And, and yet only 19, and you're talking to this girl and she's absolutely sort of, uh, just her, sort of heroic in, in the mm. way that she spoke and the way that she was giving and you know completely modest and humble. And I'm 
like, that's a true leader. Mm -hmm. That's someone who I'd like my daughter to be. Well, and let's talk about your daughter because you were telling us during the commercial break what a, what a proud father you are. The passion you just showed about this and these women, that's the passion you show about being a father. And when she was born 15 years ago, that's what inspired you to join the UN. That's right. Why was that so important for you? Well, you know, I have a son who's 18 as well, right? And, and you know, I, I immediately, once I had my daughter, it was obvious that she was not going to have the sort of necessarily the same opportunities or treated the same way as my son. It was just this. It was immediate, you know, and I, I realized then, okay, I have to make a difference. I have to somehow make my, try and do what I could so that my daughter's life would be fair. Mm -hmm. and, and sort of and, and have the same opportunities as my son. It was just clear. And that was, I'm like, okay, this is in the US or in the UK. You know, if things are hard here or, or different here, what are they like in the rest of the world? So I was like, let's, I want to rally all the guys. I want my son to grow up to be, you know, uh, understand what the situation is like and to fight as well. And I think it's so important that, that men are a part of this equation. You know, it's not just a woman's fight. It yeah. shouldn't just be, you know, UN women. It should be the UN that deal with this and the world that deals with this. It's a human issue. And gender equality is for all of us. And Absolutely. such a unique perspective from a girl dad. <laughs> <laughs> and we need more men thinking like you all across the world. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Nigel Barker, we so appreciate for you for joining us here. And on Monday, March 4th, CARE is going to host a gallery event at Spring Studios here in New York where you can find the portraits and video captured in Sierra Leone by Nigel Parker. Such Thank beauty. You Thank yeah. you, Nigel. And just ahead here on GMA3, Dr. Jen with important info for pregnant women when it comes to heated pools. And also here, the moving historical project giving us a new and compelling window, letting us hear the voices of enslaved people in America. We're going to be right back. Stay with us here on GMA. All right, we're back now with Dr. Jen taking a mental health day. How very, did, very important. How good does that sound, right? <laughs> yeah, I would so like good. one. <laughs> okay, so, so we've heard about taking a mental health day. Sometimes it's not as simple as one day, and sometimes it shouldn't be that occasional. It should be kind of built into our regular week um, or at least a month. Uh, so it was inspired by a recent post on social media that I saw, and it really outlined the plethora of benefits head to toe that occur when you kind of unplug. And again, it's not just about preventing burnout, it's about maintaining that wellness. So some of the benefits of just kind of stepping back, pausing, less burnout, improvement in mood, focus, attitude, improvement in resiliency, less loneliness, wow. more productivity. Mm. And then in terms it's of resounding. the physical, I mean, it is literally across the board. So the question is, how do you do this? both in your life, at your job, in your family, social life, et cetera. Um, and what are some tips? It would be great if you had a boss that's on board with this. Hello. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but if you don't, we do, thankfully. Yes. Um, if you don't, unplugging from social media, media in general, getting outside well, in nature. that's what I was going to say. Yeah. Just like putting oh, this thing down. Yes, and it's so that's like, why I want to get a flip phone. Well, and it's also so important <laughs> for kids, too. I'm noticing this as a parent that's looking right. at my children. I'm saying, you know what? Some days they just need to be kids. Yeah, they need, they need to, to not to be have kids. those responsibilities. And we need to get in touch with our inner kids. So doing something creative. It might be baking. It might be doing something artistic, listening to music, dancing, doing something physical. That's how I recharge a good workout. Do not neglect this. You will get benefits and dividends beyond your wildest dreams if you do it before you're burnt out. And there is science behind it, yeah. which we That's love. Right. All That's right. Thanks, nice. Dr. Jen. We'll be right back. Stay with us. 
And we are back now with Dr. Jen and looking at one of your medical questions. Is it safe to go swimming in a heated pool when you are pregnant? Mm. Okay, gosh, uh, short answer, yes briefly right but but dot 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 it depends how hot how long you're in there and also potentially what stage of pregnancy a woman is in we know that the developing fetus particularly in the first trimester is very sensitive to big changes in heat that's why maternal fever particularly in the first trimester is not good for the developing fetus but when you talk about going in a heated swimming pool for a few minutes if it's 88 degrees 85 degrees and even 90 degrees probably no risk to that because Higher, that's still lower than the body good, temperature correct dr See, benitez dr benitez for the win again <laughs> but again jacuzzis you know that can easily go over 100 degrees over 95 degrees probably not a good idea while you're pregnant although i have to be crystal clear we can't do the scientific studies behind this, right? We're not gonna right. take thousands of pregnant women and subject them to this. So common sense um, and try to keep an eye on that temperature. Most literature or recommendation says you wanna be below 95 So degrees. pools, maybe, hot tubs, probably not. Correct. Go there for you a go. There yeah. you go. All right. All right, what about your prescription for women? Okay, inspired by the fact that March is Women's History Month, mm -hmm. so I wanted to uh, discuss something very important for women's health pap smear screening for cervical cancer for the average risk woman in their 20s, 21 to 29 through 29 years of age. It's a pap smear every three years as long as they're normal. Once a woman hits 30, 30 to 65, it's called co-testing, a pap and an HPV test uh, every three years or every five years, three to five, depending on the results, assuming everything's normal. And then age 65 and over, you really wanna speak to your provider. Again, it can be discontinued after that age, but only if those previous pap smears have been normal. So important yeah. to talk about, even though sometimes it feels a little taboo. And, Women's and, health and should and never the, be. And the recommendations are truly different based on age, based on a woman's immune status, a lot of different things. So yeah. it's not one size fits all. So pay attention yeah. to those. All right, hit us up with your uh, questions on Instagram. All of your medical questions, you know we got you at ABCGMA3. And up next, the Extraordinary History Project, bringing the injustice faced by former enslaved Americans into sharp focus. And the road to redemption for a former NBA basketball pro, GMA3 is coming right back on this Friday. Stick around. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.
Welcome back to GMA3. A handful of rare audio recordings of interviews conducted with formerly enslaved black Americans is shedding new light on the brutality of slavery and racial injustice in America. Yeah, and ABC's Alex Prochet learned more about these recordings from two key scholars of the ambitious 10 Million Names Project. And a warning here, of course, the subject matter is upsetting. I want you to tell me how you got your name. I got my name from President Jeff Davis. President of Southern Confederacy. He owned my grandfather and my father. My grandfather was a blacksmith. And my father had learned how to write a little bit in Richmond, Virginia before he brought him down here. You're listening to the voice of a formerly enslaved American, a man by the name of George Johnson. This rare and historic audio interview was recorded in 1941, almost 80 years after Mr. Johnson gained his freedom. He and his family worked on a plantation in Virginia owned by Confederate leader Jefferson Davis, a staunch opponent of abolition. In the interview, Johnson recalls a day in the life as an enslaved person. Did they drive the uh, slaves down there and Davis has been very hard, or did they work them reasonable? Reasonable, reasonable. You know, uh... Marsh Jew would give Marsh Jeff another boy. And uh, his dad was, boy was chopping cotton. Boy didn't kill with the gang, you understand? Know he would come to hook the boy, boy kill you understand? Know that's the house of Marsh Jeff boy. And that's what's the trouble, son. Say, Mr. Stone don't hook me, cause I would kill with the gang. You know? Audio tape interviews like this are striking and uncommon but are actually part of a long legacy of black families, communities, and institutions, including historically black colleges and universities, that lead the way in collecting and preserving the oral histories of the formerly enslaved people in the 19th and 20th centuries. In the 1930s and beyond, technology allowed some of these interviews to be recorded as part of both federal and independent projects. Do we know roughly like how many of these recordings exist? The recordings are relatively rare, um, but the recordings come from a much larger and really um, important and in many ways unsung uh, collecting effort. In 1974, a woman named Celia Black, at the age of 114 years old and shortly before her death, recalled picking cotton in Texas as a child born into slavery. I didn't have to pick cotton or nothing. I've been doing nothing but licking the field, licking the field, oh goodness. And me and my husband would go out west and pick cotton. Pick cotton. Go out west every year. We've been this year going out there picking cotton. One of the things that kind of struck me when you have an interview re recorded in 1974, for some black Americans, I mean, they're, they're one generation removed from, from slavery. In some ways, we think of slavery as ancient history. We think of it as something that happened a very long time ago to people we couldn't possibly have known. Dr. Kendra Field, chief historian of the 10 Million Names Project, and Harvard professor Vincent Brown explained how these recordings illustrate an enormous preservation effort. The first-hand accounts shedding light on the darkest chapters in our American history, yet also revealing incredible African-American strength and survival. Didn't you have some entertainment doing a dancing or anything? Oh, I used to dance, but I don't do it now. No, I don't dance now. I try my best to serve my master. I'm trying my best to serve my head and father. 
you hear these recordings. What were the emotions when you when you hear you know the the recollections of of of, a, of a Celia Black? First is just the miracle of her survival. It's just that I'm I'm actually hearing this person who had been enslaved. It's that's kind of a miracle. With the help of the 10 million names genealogist, we were able to find the direct descendants of Celia Black. In Rhode Island, we met 68-year-old Curtis Royal, who spent time with her as a young man. She's my great-grandmother from my mother's side of the family. Do you remember any of the stories that, that she would tell? She told us about how difficult it was, you know, just being alive during that period. We had a chance to know your great-grandmother. Yes. How powerful is it being able to connect that dot? It's extremely powerful. You got to, to hear it from her directly. Not something that was passed on, but to hear it directly from her, her pain. Wow, that I firsthand mean, testimony. Unbelievable. And I don't need to tell you, those firsthand accounts are just so important in connecting us to all of our ancestors and our, our collective American history, of course. Thank you, Alex, for that moving report. But to hear those audio recordings. And as they said, every voice is a miracle in that yeah. situation. And to learn more, scan the QR code on your screen to visit our newly launched ABC News 10 Million Names digital landing page. Yeah, absolutely. And just ahead here on GMA3, we're going to switch gears with a new <laughs> dose of inspiration that comes in handy right now. Yeah, we're talking with former basketball player uh, about his new memoir. Yeah. He is fighting back against his opioid addiction and how he's now trying to help millions of others. We are coming right back with Rex yeah. Chapman. There he is. Welcome back to GMA3. Our next guest is a former college basketball star who went on to play 12 seasons in the NBA for teams like the Charlotte Hornets and the Phoenix Suns. Yeah, he's also become a social media staple sharing inspirational messages. And now he's got a new book. Take a look at the cover right there. That takes a uh, it takes a look at his raw and incredible story of healing from an opioid addiction. Please welcome back Rex. Chapman, welcome to the show. Thank you for being Guys. here. Thank you so much. Thanks so, you, listen, we don't need to tell the audience, you've had an incredible basketball career right now. Uh, but during that time, you really struggled with addiction and, and you hit rock bottom at that point. But you say that moment was actually really critical to you. Yeah, you know, my friends, my good friends have said something had to happen. You know, we d didn't prefer that this happened to you or for with you, but something needed to change. And, you know, in 2014, I was arrested, um, shoplifting. Wow. Yeah, uh, to get money for drugs and gambling, which I had gambled forever. And uh, when I retired from playing, I had seven surgeries in my last three years. The doctor gave me, an ox gave me Oxycontin for an mm -hmm. appendicitis. And in two days, I knew I was in love. I, I had another $13 million and three years left on a contract and I never picked up a basketball again. I just lost interest in everything and anything except wow. those drugs. Well, you have really turned it all around and become such an inspiration to so many out there. What about this moment felt like the right time to tell your story and what do you hope it, it uh, says to everyone out there who Man, sees it? It's a great question. You know, I, I uh, our, our kids, my ex-wife and I, Bridget, she's a rock star. She raised our kids. I played with them. Uh, I had embarrassed myself embarrassed them, uh, my sister, my mom and dad, everyone I know, my friends' kids that looked up to me. And I thought, if I'm gonna live, 
and try to dig out of this, I have to do it differently. And I have to try to show my kids a better me. And it's so incredible so how you've been able to turn this all around because right now we look this morning 1.2 million followers on social media. <laughs> ESPN calls you a Twitter feed for our time. Crazy. Our producer Kim, she was just telling me that she followed you mm -hmm. because you have such uplifting comments and up uplifting posts that you post. Why, why is it so important for you to be to be posting this and, and realizing, oh my gosh, now I have this really positive impact on society. Far reach. Yeah, it's such a contradiction because I'm not a feel-good guy. I'm trying to <laughs> trick myself every day uh, into feeling better. But you know, I've found over the last few years that if I come across something funny and somehow I've become that guy, everybody sends me everything. You got to see this. You got to see this. So. I have my pick of whatever to put out, and uh, it's pretty fun. I, I know if I watch something, a dog video or a heartwarming video, it puts me in a different place mentally. And if it does that for me, it has to do it for at least somebody else. So that makes me feel well, a little good. It's doing it for a lot of somebody else's, <laughs> about a million of them. Uh, but you, we talked in the break about the importance of therapy and breaking down that, those stigma walls. And you said you wish that you had had access and people had pushed you earlier in your situation. Yeah. What do you have to say to those out there who may be struggling with whatever demons and are reticent to seek therapy? Yeah, I wish I would have uh, had access to therapy at about age 18 or 19 because I was just very confused about life in general. I had basketball. I thought I had basketball under control, but really it was it was the only thing I had under control. I felt just uh, haywire in every other aspect of my life. And I would say, go to therapy. If you can go to therapy, go to therapy. If you can't go to therapy, talk to somebody. Find someone you can talk to. And when you go to therapy, be honest with your therapist. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that transparency is so important. Yeah. And this has been such a powerful conversation. Thank you so much, Rex, for being with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank and you, you can pick up a copy of It's Hard for Me to Live With Me Everywhere Books Are Sold. Congratulations. Absolutely. Thank, Thank you, you for being here. And just ahead here on GMA3, we're going to share some laughs with comedy's Becky Robinson. Yeah, there you see her. And she's dishing out about her hilarious <laughs> <laughs> new tour. And we're going to keep it PG when we come right back. Well, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Welcome back to GMA3. The Shigan Tour, an explosion of hilarity and over-the-top stage antics, of course, from comedian and actress Becky Robinson. She is selling out shows nationwide. You can see why with her cross-country tour, and she is here to talk to us about it. Hey there, Becky. Welcome. Yeah. It is good to have you. So for those who are not have, have not seen this show uh, yet, what can they expect? Well, they can expect, I feel so weird. I, I don't normally get this done up and I feel like you the second gorgeous. the second the lips are overlined, I just have to, oh, <laughs> good morning, Gio and Ariel. <laughs> Jennifer Coolidge. Oh, it's so good to be in New York City. Uh, I see they're setting up a beer and wine festival outside, but I couldn't get a glass of Pinot before I came on. They can expect, it's just a lot of voices. It's a lot, a lot of manic things going on in my head. Um, it's no, working. Really, it's it is a lot of fun. Yeah, um, usually outside of the venue, you'll just see like a sea of visors and a bunch of Mercedes Sprinter vans and just housewives are coming in from all edges of the of the states, you know. Explain the visors. The visors are from my character entitled Housewife, who is like just a very blunt, outspoken mom who's like, 
you know, she loves her kids, but how much? Yeah. You know? She likes to <laughs> paint them a little bit more. She than does. The kids. She, yeah, she steals the kids' pills and such. And uh, a lot of people that come to the shows actually don't know that I'm a person like myself. <laughs> they think like, it's just your character. Yeah, because I do. Oh, that's I do have to show as me, and like I come out, you know, with my hair down and, and trying my best with a, a contour, and they're like, "Wait a sec, she's young." What do you mean you're not married? What about Dashiell and Maccabee, the kids? <laughs> and I just have to be like, it's a character, guys. I'm very mentally unwell. How you did know? you create that entitled uh, suburban housewife character? How did you create that? Um, well, during the pandemic, I've you know found myself in a, in a dark spot, like many people. And um, I was staying, I grew up in Portland, Oregon. And my sister works in the ER, so I was kind of helping her out for a bit. And she's just, you know in the trenches and having a, a tough time. And then I went over to my parents' house and they were in the cul-de-sac and they were having the time of their lives. <laughs> Living their They're, best lives. My dad's like, I mean, the golf course is all to myself, you know? <laughs> and he's, and my mom kind of had like a Florida approach to the pandemic. She's like, so what if I want to go to the Thirsty Lion and do happy hour with the girls? And so I just kind of, I just kind of sat there. I was like, you guys are out of your minds. And it just, I think it was anger mixed with like, I don't know, it, a character or something or a joke always, it comes from like a big emotion. And I think I was just so like shocked that one day they left and I just, I pulled my shiniest bob wig. I went into their closet <laughs> and I found a skirt and a visor and a polo. And I looked in the mirror and I was like, oh, I could, I could do some things. You I was just, I just started screaming. I was like, Scott, <laughs> trash. It just came to you. Yeah, it just felt kind of powerful. Okay. <laughs> and it is. Uh, so you talked about wigs. You have a line yeah, of wigs. What, what, what exactly about the wig gets you into your character? Why did you feel gravitate, like you were gravitating towards wigs? Um, I have since I was a, a young tot. I think, I don't know if it's because I have the voice of a little boy, but I like to do, <laughs> I like to do a lot. I like to do a lot of voices, and so I think I, I just, I'll be walking around my house and I'll be saying things out loud, and then I'll find a perfect wig, and I'll, I've got about 200 of them now, so my house is a very scary place. But it's, it's, also, it's also fun. I just, I just like to play. I think there's so many different, like, archetypes out there. There's so many funny, like, different people out in the world, and you know, my name's Becky, I'm pretty basic. And so it's fun to put a wig on and just transform into something completely different and like see what sort of powers it feels like, you know, it gives you. I gotta throw in there really quick. How did mom and dad react to being spoofed essentially on a global tour? Well, at first I was like, they're gonna love this. Cause I posted the first video and it got like millions of views, like celebrity, I had Chris Pratt DM me, he was like, if you're making a movie, I'm playing your husband. Wow. And I was like, and you're like, yeah, I was you like, are. you can audition. <laughs> My parents are gonna be thrilled. And then I sat them down, I showed them the first video, and my mom's like, it's a little close to home, Beck. <laughs> she was, now they love it though. Now my dad calls me up and he's like, can I get some merch? Like he's, he's, he's well known at his country club now. So, well, Becky yeah. is anything but basic. Yeah, oh, we agree. Thank you, yeah. thank you for being here and joining us here on GMA3. Congrats on your tour. Thank and you. make sure to check her out on the She Gone Tour coming to a city near you. Thank and you that guys. is what you need to know for this week. I'm Gio Benitez. I'm Ariel Reshef. And for all of us here at ABC News and Becky, have a great <laughs> weekend and go see her on tour. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you guys so much.
as in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.